Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and to hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. As always, let's do our weekly check-in. Judith, it's been kind of a strange week for me. I'm seeing a little bit of regression with my seven-year-old. I don't know if this is related to the pandemic and going back to school, but I'm having a lot of trouble at bedtime now. This hasn't happened in a few years, but My seven-year-old is refusing to sleep alone. She cries if I don't snuggle with her or my husband doesn't snuggle with her. And then even when I try to do that, like 11 p.m. sneak out up to my own room, she comes and finds us um, at 2 or 3 a.m., which also is scary because we live upstairs and she has to creep up these stairs in the middle of the night. So there has been some regression, I would say, on her part. And I'm just wondering if that's connected to everything that's going on. I know a lot of what I've been reading obviously suggests that everything circulating in the news and the current events does impact even our youngest children. They know something's up. So that's been kind of strange. In the meantime, with all the corona discussions, one part of that, of course, is the vaccine and whether that's going to be available. I've had a ton of colleagues reaching out to me trying to figure out if they can get the vaccine. And I've just told them the best thing that they can do here in Michigan is contact their county health department. I don't have any inside line on that. And as of right now, I'm not an essential worker. College instructors in Michigan, at least, aren't um, part of the first series of vaccines, at least in Oakland County. I'm not on the list. So I'm optimistic about the vaccine, but it just hasn't been available for myself and my colleagues. So all in all, it's been kind of a strange week back to school. How was your week? Well, there's the I'm just thinking about the vaccines now, which you're saying, since my kids are back in school, I really wish that they would actually vaccinate all the teachers or at least give them the option to do that. I don't know if that's something that's discussed over there. I will be honest because I'm home. I'm not overly concerned about it for getting it for myself, although my husband hasn't talking about it because he's out and about. So the vaccine's definitely something that we've been talking about too and thinking about. I hope that, you know, they figure out how to roll those out more efficiently, quickly, because really I think when it comes down to it, that's what's going to get us back to some kind of normalcy, although that's the question of whether that's, you know, ever going to be or what normalcy is going to look like after all of this. Our We had our first week back at school this week. And that was interesting. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate this. Monday was for me sort of a day of just kind of walking around the house, being really confused about how quiet it was and things like that. And just kind of trying to get back into a rhythm. But and then Tuesday, Tuesday started out as a as a delayed start for the school because of icy conditions that then at like 7:45 turned into the school being canceled entirely for that day. 
so that affected my older daughter. She was home with me on Tuesday and then Wednesday was still a delayed start. So even the first full week back at school wasn't actually a full week back at school because of the weather conditions. And I know that the winter here can last all the way through April. Sometimes right now I'm looking out my window and the snow is coming down pretty hard. Today it was we were lucky that it started in the morning so that school didn't have to get canceled but yeah that's you know it's still a little bit of a crapshoot between the the snow and the weather and everything else but today everybody is at school and so I'm you know I'm enjoying that I'm enjoying the quiet I'm enjoying the possibility the opportunity to be able to chat with you today so um, yeah, that's that's exciting. And you've shared with me over the last few days some of your um, troubles and successes with getting ready for the new semester. And I imagine that a lot of our listeners are in the same boat where you're starting to get ready, com- compile your syllabi, get everything set up for those those of our listeners and you that are still teaching online. And so we thought that it would be interesting to kind of talk about how you and others out there are approaching um, teaching in the new semester, especially what I was just saying about sort of what normalcy looks like now that we've that we're sort of at some point going to be emerging from this pandemic. I think it was I think it's really interesting. Um, and I've been sort of thinking about how you guys are, are approaching this, how you're you know, I'm interested in hearing about how your teaching and the design has changed over the last nine months. What have you learned? What have you improved? What are you still struggling with? So I would love to have that conversation with you today and especially and, you know, hear from you a little bit. But then also we've asked our listeners on Instagram to give us some input so we can kind of um, have a combined approach there. That's great because it is the start of the semester for so many of us. A few of us might have already uh, began a couple of weeks ago, and it felt like in the fall we were just rather flummoxed. We didn't know what to do because it was our first time that we put all of this into practice as far as the online pedagogy. Now at least we've had time to sort of stop, take a beat, assess our approach, maybe consider what did work well in that synchronous online classroom, what did not work so well. And I know the classroom is a passion for so many of us. So I think it's great to sort of talk through how this new landscape has impacted our pedagogy. And I'd actually even like to hear from you, Judith, a little bit about how maybe you've revised some of your own approaches to staying organized and completing tasks. Because even though we're in slightly different fields, I think a lot of the key components relating to like organization, communication, technology, there is some overlap there. And I agree it has been a fall like no other. So I think this is a great topic for us to sort of unpack as we begin the new semester. Yeah, absolutely. The The technology thing is, is interesting, is an interesting question for us. Um, the, we, what I use for the most part is very basic. I don't actually use a ton of um, technology. I'm very technologically challenged. So for work, a lot of my organization is with spreadsheets and things like that. We don't use a lot of software, even though we have some available to us. And all of our work meetings and even the conferences that I've attended have been through Zoom. So a lot of my organizational um, changes have been in response to arranging my schedules around the kids that are home. And so I don't know to what extent that applies to the teaching, but 
just to start us off, I think it's interesting to think about what kinds of platforms you're using and what kinds of platforms our listeners are using. So I started with that question. And when I asked that on Instagram, I got a broad range of responses. Some people are using Canvas. Zoom was a common reply. And then some of our listeners were using Google Meet for larger classes, which is coincidentally also what my daughter was using for her school. They were using Google Classroom. But so just the ability to have a large number of uh, participants in there, I think, is a is a probably a core component. And then I think colleges continue to use Blackboard, too. That was something that somebody mentioned. Um, which is, you know, which is sort of a long standing tradition almost already that's been around for at least 10 to 15 years, I would say. Erin, what have you been using and has that changed over the last two semesters? So like you, I was efficient in Blackboard for many, many years. And I think it was about two years ago, we made the switch from Blackboard to Canvas, like many college campuses. It turns out that Canvas is not only a bit more economical, but it just has better user functionality. It's just more intuitive. And I really love using Canvas. At first, I was a little bit um, scared because it was all so new to me, but I really have grown to love Canvas. And Canvas itself even has a conferencing option. But the caveat there is that if you run your class sessions through Canvas conferencing, they only stay posted for two weeks. And that can be an issue, as I'll talk a little bit more about later, when students miss class or students want to go back and revisit content. That is an interesting question, though, Judith, because when I think about the classes we attended as students, we didn't really always have that option to go back and revisit content. It was like you had to be in the class to get the content. Some people would record sometimes. This is really going to date myself, folks, but I was even before the cell phone. So, (laughs) you know, they had those little tape recorders. Some people used to bring those and you had to like ask the professor for permission to tape the class. And I would assume now in the digital era, there's a new tool. You could probably even do a recording with your phone, although that would take a lot of data or take a lot of um, juice out of your phone. So we have had that question of, well, then what's best? We use Canvas and of Blackboard. But within that, what should we be using to meet? Should we use Zoom or Google Meets? And as of right now, my college hasn't actually said you must use Zoom. But I really like Zoom for a couple of reasons. And maybe our listeners can relate to this as well. I'm able to like plan my entire semester's worth of classes in about two minutes. Honestly, it's a repeating meeting. I put in the time there's, I don't include a code for my students just to break down that barrier. And then it shows up in Canvas. So like, there's no excuse for them to say, oh my gosh, I couldn't find our Zoom meeting link. It shows up literally in their Canvas calendar, but then it's also in a few other places, they get like an automatic email, like this is your Zoom meeting and it shows up right in Canvas for them. So I really like that. Zoom also allows you to record your sessions and save them to the cloud. What I've been doing with that is that I don't make those classes shared or available unless a student asks me because, you know, why should I put that out there if they don't need it? But if a student says, you know, I had to go to the doctor today, can I please uh, get the class video? I share that with them. Um, Another thing that I've been using that I actually found out about, which is really cool, is an app called Hypothesis. And I think you would love this because I know, like me, you probably love annotating texts um, like books. And I bet... If I were to look in your library, I'd find some marked up books with notes or highlighting or maybe sticky notes. Uh, I don't know if you have a choice there. But 
Hypothesis allows you to share like a PDF with your students and then you can do what's called a group annotation. So we can kind of see what they're reading and what they're calling attention to. And it allows for not only sort of a deep active read, but it's like a social annotation as well. So they can kind of say, I like the symbolism in this paragraph. And then the student can reply to that and make a comment. So that was something that I really enjoyed using the semester as well. But I'm mostly hosting my classes through Canvas and then with the Zoom meetings. And I will say this, here in Michigan, uh, colleges do have the option to be meeting in person at this point. It hasn't been forbidden to hold face-to-face classes at college anymore. But our college has decided just to keep hosting everything except some of our hands-on lab classes via virtual synchronous meetings because the decision was made just in the name of safety. So there are probably college classes meeting in Michigan and I assume and all over the country in the face-to-face setting now. We did have some listeners that responded that they were meeting face-to-face, although it wasn't very many. The large majority of the people that responded are teaching online right now. And like like I've mentioned before, I'm wondering to what degree Uh, colleges are going to keep that up right until after even when it's safe to come back into the classroom because it seems to be so much more efficient. And so I like your approach of saying, you know, it, it, I will, I will have a recording available for you in case that you have missed a class or something like that. So that's, I think like a really great way to use that technology because it does make things easier while at the same time sort of maintaining the sense that first and foremost, it is expected for students to attend the classes if they are being taught synchronously. I did get some replies from our listeners that classes were entirely asynchronous, which we can talk about more. I thought that was interesting. But in the setup that you have, I it just seems a very reasonable way to use the tools, the online tools and the tech, technology that's available to you. I love the idea of this combined annotation. You are absolutely right. I do like to annotate my texts and just to have the opportunity for everybody to put their comments together and then use that to jumpstart a conversation in the class when you're doing smaller group sections or something like that sounds really productive. It sounds like that could be a really productive way to prep students for classes and then to put something in front of them that will really facilitate conversation because they all have already thought about what other people are thinking about the same text that they're reading. So I think that sounds really great. Yeah, I think you dig it. So <laughs> yeah. do you have any other questions that you're thinking about as we move through this conversation? So what I'm really curious about, and I kind of started outlining that earlier, is just how technology has impacted your pedagogy. And I asked our readers, our listeners that as well. And some uh, some of the responses that we got there were that some of our, one of our listeners felt that it was more difficult to guide and and sort of control, well, not necessarily control, but to guide class conduct, constrain, I think is the the word that she used. So she felt that she has to be more explicit and more involved in, um, in guiding the way that students communicate with each other. And she felt that it was harder to protect uh, marginalized students. So I think that was a really, that's really interesting because it's sort of makes sense if we think about how much easier it is to say something to to sort of have that protection of the screen right 
So like, in, so instead of being in the classroom to say offensive or potentially off offensive or hurtful things, it is so much easier to just type them out and throw them up somewhere and then have um, others, other people have to sort of like deal with it on their own or whatever. So that made a lot of sense to me. I don't know. Was that something that you had experienced before or thought about before? Uh, was it, is that something that you struggled with in your classes? Actually, it is something that I've read about and considered, but thankfully I didn't run into that problem. My problem was kind of on, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, which is like not any response or, you know, <laughs> I, I, I could see how people do feel protected via that screen of the internet, right? I think we see that all the time. That's what an internet troll basically is. Someone right. that would never say that face to face to a person. Well, perhaps they do now. They've been emboldened a bit, but <laughs> they, you know, it's anonymous. And so even within this, synchronous class, people might be more willing to say something because they're not really sitting next to a person looking them face to face. My situation was that I found that it was a little bit harder to sort of foster a sense of community in the way that normally happens organically in a face to face class setting. So I didn't really have students making many comments at all. That was a trouble. It was a lot of dark screens. One issue I think that's important to share with my students is just like, how do you conduct yourself in this virtual synchronous class? And this seems so obvious. I know you're going to say, what, Erin? But like letting them know that it's not acceptable to be driving while they're in the online class, not eating or going through a fast food checkout. That happened. I had a student that was cooking. Just all kinds of things are like students were like, well, I'm actually at work right now. So, you know, because I would be trying to plug in these like engagement things or like, okay, everyone, let's contribute to this Google document altogether. We can all plug our answers in. And one person was like, well, I, I'm actually at work right now, so I can't do that. You know, oh. I work at, I'm, you know, and I'm like, well, but this would have been a class where we're meeting. So we were wondering, like, once they got their schedule and they saw that it was virtual, did they just change their work schedule? Because we only knew we were going to make that change like a couple weeks before the semester started. So I've had to really kind of make sure to give students guidance about what is acceptable, you know, and I know a lot of people have reported these other kind of classroom management issues like don't come to class in your PJs if you are, you know, or like laying in your bed for class. I mean, that's a matter of preference, but at the same time, it can be a little distracting. I know one girl had something that was kind of, I don't know, like low cut and revealing. And I'm just like, you know, if you wouldn't wear it to school, maybe you don't want to wear it on video. I've had a lot of those things that I've really had to think about. That makes so much sense to me. And I even had to have that conversation with my daughter when she was doing her virtual schooling where they ha and they had some guidance about that too right they had like a read aloud session and the teacher said now if you want to lay in your bed or sit on the couch that's fine and the teachers were telling them too you know during the formal instruction you should be sitting at your desk and during the formal you know during the other times you we can have a little bit more flexibility and so i kind of had to make sure to enforce that at, at home, but she's a seven-year-old, you know, so, or an eight-year-old. So hopefully by the time, or I would hope that by the time that she hits college, that's something where if the instructor puts down those guidelines, that, 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 that those would make sense to her. And this kind of, to me, is, is, I think that is a very important question and it's a matter of mindset, right? So like, I, so that we, this wasn't something that we did in Germany, but when I did my year abroad, in Iowa, I realized when people had presentation at school, presentations at school for a subject, they would 
dress up for it. And like I said, this wasn't something that we did in Germany. And so it, it was sort of something that I looked at and felt was kind of strange. But then the more I thought about it, the more sense it made to me that it's just a matter of getting yourself into the right mindset. And I agree with you that with the virtual schooling and the classes being taught online and all of us sitting in front of the computer, it is a little bit harder to get yourself ready and I am guilty of that. And I, you know, and I think when there's like 20 people on the screen, like whatever, I kind of think that like maybe I'm kind of hoping that other, I don't look that closely at other people. So I'm assuming that nobody looks that closely at me, but it's just a matter of like getting yourself into the right mindset and getting yourself ready and being attentive and all of those things. And I've heard uh, anecdotes from parents that I know that are also university instructors that have told me the same thing. They, you know, they weren't getting any responses from students when they didn't require them to put their cameras on. And so they, you know, they said just this once I need to see everybody. And yeah, half of them, like not half of them, but somebody was driving, somebody was babysitting, somebody's working, like you said, somebody's cooking. And that's not something that would be acceptable in any other scenario. And so I think you know, and this kind of leads us into the next question, too, of whether you require students to keep their cameras on. And we've sort of like talked a little bit now about the the maybe the pros or like why it is important or what the importance could be of leaving your cameras on. I think there is a question of like, how do you establish the same level of sincerity and commitment to the class if it can just be something that's on in the background or not at all or you can watch it later and I'm sure that there are people that have thought about this a lot and have good strategies, and I'm sure that it's possible, but it's definitely a question. So let's talk a little bit about what our listeners said, because when I asked the question of whether or not um, teachers, instructors, professors require their students to keep their camera on, everybody said they don't. And so I think that was I think that was interesting. And so I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why people are not requiring their students to to keep their camera on and maybe you can comment on them. So one of the one of the answers was as I mentioned before that the classes are 100% asynchronous so that makes sense. There's it's not a question in that regard in that context. Uh, somebody said that they feel that it's invasive, controlling and just all around bad pedagogy. And I was wondering what your what your thoughts on that were. Do you feel too that it's invasive and controlling? Um, and and this relies to another response that we got that some students are uncomfortable with their background, both in terms of physical location and the people that are around in the environment. Are those things that you consider when you make your decision of whether or not students are required to keep their cameras on? Yes, absolutely. And there are some very important reasons why. When a student signs up to attend my face-to-face class, they show up and that's all I see. I see the student, I see their performance, I see them with their book bag. When a student might be coming from a lower socioeconomic group or home, then, then that's making us privy to all that background. And maybe some students don't care to be defined by those limitations. So it can feel extremely invasive to a student who might be living in a, an apartment or home in Detroit that's run down, where there are other people around, loud distractions. They might not want us to see that. 
And they might feel like that is kind of like altering our perception of the student. Do I know the student only as this like sharp as attack a student? Or then do I see them as like, wow, you know, they're living in this rundown place. Oh my gosh, you know, they're impoverished. So there are some like very good socioeconomic concerns as to why we don't require that. I think that is kind of the main one. It's also like you can't always control the people behind you. This is like sort of a side note, but one of my colleagues was joking around how her husband's um, bathroom was in the basement, and it just seemed like he would just always be crossing the camera in a towel, and it was kind of like, so she was telling us she actually had to switch her whole home office around because of this, and I don't know, it's just kind of a silly thing, but you know, for our students, they might have people they're living with, whether it is guardians, relatives, aunts, uncles, that they can't really control or temper what's going on in the background. They might have kids that they don't want us to see, or maybe they have, you know, a problem with seeing their children via a video. So all those considerations kind of go into why a lot of people don't require it. Does that make more sense? Yeah, I think it does. I, I understand those considerations. I, you know, I'm trying to think about like using zoom backgrounds and all those other things, but I, I understand, I understand the concern and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that that's a very respectful way of teaching. And that's probably what, or that might be what our, you know, listener meant when she said, when she talked about it in sort of pedagogical terms, I think it's a great, I always think that it's important to meet students where they're at. And I think that's, one way of doing that. So I, you know, I understand that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, another response that we got there just to end this on a light note is the, that some students need to keep off their video just to improve their Wi-Fi connection. And you and I both know a thing or two about that. So that's, um, that, that was, that made me chuckle when I got that response for our listeners, Aaron and I used to have a video running while we were recording the podcast and we had some issues with the Wi-Fi, so now we've now we're doing just the audio. So I thought that was funny. Um, that made me laugh. Um, I've seen that here. I don't mean to cut you off, but I've seen that here as well because so when my children were on, their teachers do require them to have the camera on. And there was one day where all five of us had our cameras on and we like, we broke the internet. I mean, <laughs> just like it didn't work anymore because and I, I had to tell my kids, I was like, look, you can email your teacher or I will email them and say, look, we just can't all five of us have cameras on right now. I am responsible for teaching a class. I do need my camera on. I'm sorry to say, but in this instance, I am the most important person right now, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so it did. I like fragged out my, my whole zoom link crashed. My students thought it was oh, hilarious. No. And you know, my kids, I could hear their teachers actually scolding people for being in bed, for wearing a blanket and like, put your camera on. You should be, and I could hear her saying, you should be sitting at a desk or a table. You shouldn't be trying to do math in bed. And I'm like, wow, they're really strict. So kind of conversely to everything I just said about the privacy, I think there are also some real reasons why camera use, at least part of the time in the class, is also advantageous. I think there's another side to this coin, which is that, like I said, you know, I want to make sure they are actually engaged at certain points in time. I want to be able to have a conversation for sort of this like Socratic questioning, discussion, facilitation. And if all I'm looking at are black Zoom screens with their names on them. It's it can be really hard to do that with when everyone has their camera off. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me too. And one of our listeners actually responded and said that her perspective as a master's student was that whenever classes were 
requiring students to show their camera, she felt that the that the classes were much better and much more fruitful. And I think that you're right about that, that sort of the level of engagement is just is naturally going to be higher if people can see each other. And so I was thinking about the way that maybe the level of the class and the type of class has something to do with it. And for younger students, I also think, again, the same point might be true. And I know that my daughter was sort of self-conscious about the background that she had. And so she had we had asked her to sit at her desk and then, but then she kept moving her computer over to her bookshelf and then sitting in front of the bookshelf. And so I would go in there and say, well, you can't write like that. You can't take notes. Like, don't you need to take notes? And she was adamant about it because that gave her a plain background that, that way she was facing her closet and nobody could see sort of the rest of her bedroom. So she was also self-conscious about that. But then she found a workaround um, that, you know, obviously we have the luxury of, of doing that. She had her own room. She had a lot of um, space in her room to move around. And I acknowledge that. At the same time, I also think that, you know, as we were saying earlier, I think the younger students still sort of need to learn those techniques about getting into the right mindset and how to get ready to learn and how to be prepared. Whereas I think maybe at the college level, we can expect our students to sort of have those things down and then hand over a little bit of the responsibility and the trust into their own learning. So again, the point that I'm trying to make here, I think, is a, a little bit of variability, um, a, a lot of acceptance of people's individual circumstances, and then ultimately the trust in the student that they also can figure out how to get the best out of the class in some ways. Yeah, and there are some different opportunities, things I'm trying this semester, again, after learning from the fall. Okay, you know, in Canvas, we have discussions, and our discussion boards there have definitely improved since the time you and I were doing Blackboard discussions in graduate school. Maybe they had this, but I don't recall this. There is an insert media, and there's a tool right within the discussion itself where students can actually record themselves giving like a verbal response or a video or something like that. So I've added a couple of assignments like that. So then the student does have some autonomy over like when and where they're going to record and show their face and I can hear their voice. They could easily go outside and do a quick phone recording or something like that and upload it there. I thought that was going to be an interesting workaround. I'll let you know how that plays out. So I think we can be creative. And then what one of my colleagues suggested, and I've already sort of pointed towards this, is like, you might not have to say, have your camera on during the entire session. But when you are doing the little breakout groups, and they're doing group assignments and group work, things like that, close reading, then say, now is a time to turn the camera on. Because my colleague was like, why do you want them to have the camera on? Is it just so you can see them looking at you? Or is it because you want to see that they're actually working and doing things? You know, is it always advantageous to keep the camera on the whole time? But are there points and moments where you can say, now let's do this together. Now let's try and turn our cameras on to do this group assignment. It's funny because I had one class where barely anyone kept the camera on. And then I had this tiny six-person class, um, and they all kept their cameras on. So that was nice because the class was so small. It would have been really horrible if no one ever turned their camera on. And like you said, there are workarounds too with like the backgrounds. I mean, so if someone is kind of like frustrated or a little embarrassed, I'll be honest, Judith, when I was doing my meetings yesterday, I had to work from my bedroom. I don't want people seeing my bathrobe and my mess and <laughs> it's not professional. So I just choose, I, I know Zoom and Google Meets both have backgrounds now and I just put that up and it doesn't always look perfect, but no one is seeing 
the bathrobe or my husband's paint pants lying in the background. So I think we could let the students know how those can be used. Here's another thing though. They don't always know how to do that stuff yet. I know that sounds like they should, but they don't. So it's kind of like on our end to say, here's what you can do to improve this, or I don't like where you're working from at a background, something like that. So maybe that should be a little quick day one assignment. I was going to say, I mean, you could put that on the syllabus and you know, you could add that to some, some of the conduct lessons that you go over on during your first day of class that you normally do in the classroom as well. There's always some sort of guidelines about, you know, how to be a good student, I guess, and what the expectations are. And even I remember, you know, showing students the, the blog that I was using and things like that. And so that could be, that could be part of that discussion. And I had, I actually, this is a funny side note. I had an author ask me the other day, um, that a potential author that I was talking to on zoom, like, Oh, did you just move? Because there's always boxes in the background in my office. And I just had to be like, Nope, I've lived here for a year and a half, but this is just all the Christmas stuff that has like accumulated. And I don't really have another place to put it anywhere in the house. So my background often has like boxes and, and things like that or laundry. Like I, you know, I've, left like laundry baskets in the background. And then I'm just like, Oh, I hope nobody notices those. So I could definitely use a lesson in how to use zoom screen background. I haven't, I tried to figure it out. I don't think it's entirely intuitive. So I've tried to figure it out and I couldn't get it. But then again, like I said earlier, I'm technologically challenged, but I think students probably would appreciate just a brief, like two minute, this is how you do that. And then they can be, you know, they can still, you can still leave the option open. Like you still don't have to force them to do it, but it's a good way to stay engaged, I think. And, and that should be, that should be relevant to the students. I feel like anyway. Yeah. It can be tricky too, because you have to make sure you have like a fully, I guess, white screen behind you, AKA green screen, because depending on where I'm sitting, yeah, it looks weird and goofy. And I'm like going in and out of like this, like, garden landscape or the golden gate bridge or whatever it is so (laughs) that can be tricky but again I bet you'd learn it in about two seconds flat and just it's nice to be able to throw that up there because I have the same thing with the laundry and all that but we'll come back to that idea of modeling because I think that's an important discussion to have too in this new landscape we can't expect our students to know how to do all these things because especially if they're like freshmen, this is like their first semester of college they just had. And it was this, you know, so yeah, that's hard. It's, it's it's hard anyway to be a freshman sometimes, but then it's like, oh yeah, and we're going to do this and it's going to be the zoom meeting and you're going to be using, you know, a lot of new things. So we'll come back to that idea of modeling. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's difficult. I think, like you said, starting college is so hard to begin with and the classes are so different to begin with. And then to have this added challenge of not having fellow students that you can ask for advice and not knowing maybe, or not having the courage necessarily to reach out to the professors right away. If you have questions, I think that makes sense. And I think that's very fair to keep in mind. I did want to go back to something that we started talking about earlier. And this is something that I also am interested in, in terms of pedagogy. This is actually something that sort of I've been thinking about and is connected to why I wanted to talk to you about this which is the question of how do you keep students engaged and especially to what extent are you still able to do small group activities and what kinds of technologies are you using? Maybe you can talk a little bit more about, because I know that when we're doing 
these intro classes, or at least I used to have group work and have close readings for the literature classes where students were asked to sort of really look closely at the text and have conversations about them. How do you handle that at a time when everybody is in their own rooms and you can't actually put them physically into small groups? What's your approach to that? So that's why I love Zoom. It does have that small group breakout. So you can just break the groups out into like groups of your choosing. So say I have a group of like five nursing students, five criminal justice students. So I could break it up that way if I had all that information prior to class, which I do, or I can just randomly assign here's a breakout group. And one of our best practices that we've talked a lot about, and I'm on a pedagogy task force for synchronous learning now, which has been kind of neat to learn about what other colleges are doing and research that is the idea that you don't want to just lecture online for like 45 minutes. You don't even want to do it for 30 minutes or to be honest, even 20, because you know, when we're talking about this idea of engagement, people are going to check out. I always kind of giggle at this and I don't know if any of my leadership folks listen to this podcast, but we make all these rules for students, but then we turn around and we have like three hour PowerPoint presentation meetings. I'm like, (laughs) you realize this all is applicable to adult learners as well. Like we don't want to sit and listen to a 45 minute lecture either, (laughs) right? It doesn't change just because I'm a middle-aged woman. So I think that's really important to think about is like breaking the class up into manageable sections, but also ones that are exciting that you are forcing the students to keep engaged. We no longer take attendance. My college is a non-attendance taking college. I think that's interesting. So what then makes students attend class if you're not actually grading on attendance? Remember at Wayne State, you could drop people if they miss like three classes even. You could say, no, that's my attendance rule. You're out of the class now. We don't have that. So I have to do little in-class activities that have points values associated with them. I try to keep them light, but like connected to the assignment. I'm sure you remember the also famous rhetorical analysis essay. So I try to keep it fun and visual and like, okay, class today, we're going to break up into small groups and we're going to talk about memes. I think memes are great for discussion. Let's talk about how this meme attempts to appeal to ethos, logos, and pathos or pathos, as I've heard it pronounced both ways. How do we do that? And so I think if we kind of, what I kind of do for my class session is kind of bounce back and forth between, you know, 10 minutes of explanation and lecture, then go to a group assignment, then come back from the small groups to a big group and have the groups report back, like put the onus on the students. So it's not just me talking for 45 minutes or an hour. Small side note for our synchronous online classes, we are online for at least 50% of the time, but that means I can keep them on the Zoom meeting for 37 minutes and then say, okay, class, now you can use the following 37 minutes to work on this writing assignment. You can send it back to me. I'm going to keep Zoom open if you want to talk to me about what you're working on. But I like to allow students writing time in a writing class so they can talk to me as they're working on that project. So I don't know if that all makes sense or sounds incredibly different than what we used to do in face-to-face. I've tried to replicate what happened in those classes as much as possible. No, that seems to make a lot of sense again. And it's uh, it seems like a response to some of the challenges that some of our listeners have mentioned, because when I asked them what the biggest challenge during the pandemic semester was, our listeners responded by saying that the biggest challenge was how to keep students engaged and the lack of connection with the students. And so I think using the technology in the way that you have 
and finding ways to implement what your tr your traditional pedagogy while still using uh, or while using this new technology, that all seems to make a lot of sense to me. Did you feel that the lack of connection was an issue for you too? Or did was the way that you, what you just were describing about your pedagogy helped you combat that? Or was it still an issue nonetheless? I would say still an issue nonetheless, because since you've known me, I am an outgoing person. And one of the best parts of the job for me is actually getting to know the students on a real personal level, working with them, seeing their faces, being able to read the mood even. And I don't think you can do that. I don't think anyone can do that over the internet. It's just different. It is, like you said, a barrier. It's a screen. And so, you know, there'd be times when I could read a student coming to the classroom, like, wow, what's going on? What's happening? I can see that you're not yourself. I don't have that pulse on the students in the same way I did. And that to me was really hard. There are students that I have only heard their voices, and that's just weird to me. Like, I feel like I don't know them as well. I feel like some of even that chit-chat, you know, that little, like, back and forth. We talked about this as well. Like, when you're waiting for a Zoom meeting to start up, there's not that kind of, like, just making small talk with the person sitting behind you or next to you. It's just silence. And I always felt like it was a little awkward too to like make the small talk with my class on a Zoom meeting. So it is still a challenge. I'm going to consider how I can make that better. I know one thing that a lot of people have been doing is having online Zoom sessions or for like office hours to talk to their students. I have made that an opportunity but I haven't made it a requirement yet. So maybe I might have to have a week where like everyone is required to meet with me one-on-one -on -one via Zoom. But then the side note to that is I just had an article today about Zoom fatigue and how much are we going to do or require of our students that, you know, at some point I feel like it's going to lead to burnout. So I am looking for better ways to continue that developing that sense of community with my students. I would love to know if anyone has a better idea because when the primary mode of getting together for class is just Zoom, adding more Zoom meetings, I don't know if that's really going to make it better, if that makes sense. So I was a little sad about that because I thought, wow, you know, I could pass a student by in Target or at the mall and I would never know it was them because I never actually saw their faces. So that was kind of hard for me. Yeah, that 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 resonates with me a lot. And I think the, you know, the Zoom fatigue We've talked about that a couple of times, and I think one of the issues there is the overlap and the interrupting, and the it's just a lot harder. I, what I'm trying to say is I feel like there's a difference between having a one-on-one -on -one Zoom meeting and having a group Zoom meeting. I think one-on-one -on -one Zoom meetings actually can provide that sense of connection in a way that group meetings just don't. I know that for us at work, we got to the point where, you know, so, you know, usually... I work in an office environment or I used to work in an office environment. So of course, for me, having worked remotely, remotely prior to the pandemic, this was already an issue before, but I used to work in an office. We had like an open floor plan with like little um, cubes that we worked in. And so you would, you know, go to the bathroom and come back and stop in somebody else's cube on the way and just have a little chat for a couple minutes. Or, you know, you would go over, you had a question, you would go over to a colleague and ask the question and then talk about a couple things for a couple couple minutes. And that all has fallen by the wayside. And so we actually, it was something I didn't mention earlier, is that we actually use Slack at work. I don't know if that's something that universities use or makes a lot. Of, it's just a chat pro. It's like an instant messaging program. And so we've been using that. 
for a for a good while. And that's a way to sort of check in on projects and communicate with people that you're working on a team with and things like that. And they have they set up just before Christmas, I think, somebody on our team decided to set up a large team chat that was just for fun things. So people are posting pictures of their Christmas trees and their pets and all those kinds of things. So there's an opportunity there to sort of make those connections, what we're reading and things like that. Just a, just a office chat sort of side channel that we have been using. And then the other thing that they started doing was for, we have um, weekly team meetings and so our boss decided to open those up 15 minutes early and people can log in and just kind of have like coffee hour or something, bring your coffee and then chat. But I think that, and I think that's a really nice idea and such an important way to like keep people connected and give people an opportunity to talk about other things, but it's hard to really engage with other people in this like group setting. So I don't know that there are a lot of ways to really uh, reproduce the personal connection that we have through passing somebody in the hallway, like you said, or, you know, communal lunch breaks or whatever. And so I do see that that's a challenge. At the same time, I do want to make a case for the one-on-one -on -one meeting, which I do think is very fruitful and beneficial and makes you feel at least a little bit connected. Although I still find them awkward at times. It still is. And especially having Zoom meetings with people that you don't know. Of course, you know, having lived abroad, I have been doing video conferences with my parents for over 10 years. And so I'm really used to sort of the medium and enjoy and, and enjoy talking to them. And my kids are used to it way before the pandemic. But it's very different to talk to somebody who is like a potential mentor or an instructor or somebody that uh, that you don't know personally. So I'm yeah, thinking. I see... Here, I'm sorry to interrupt you. This is the hard part of this. Um, you're giving me a really good idea, which is something we used to do when we were teaching assistants. A lot of people had a one week or two weeks where they had a required professor meeting or yeah. office hours. And I will say that that is incredibly exhausting on the part of the professor. It's like, oh, goody, I'm not going to teach class this week. But actually, it ends up being right. way more time consuming. But I did do that with my small class, my six person class, we just were at a point where everyone was working on a draft. And I just made them all do like 20 minute meetings with me, which in a three hour class or whatever it was, it went by really fast. And again, some of the students, you know, one of them kind of talked to me from out in her car, uh, but they all met with me, I was able to talk with them and chat with them. So that is something that I could think would be replicated for classes. But I know if some of our listeners have like those, um, undergraduate level lecturer classes with like 45 people or 75 people. <laughs> that's not going to, that. yeah, there's no way that's going to work. And my colleagues and I have also been having an informal Wednesday, we call it like the coffee meetup. We just drink our coffee and shoot the breeze. It's just nice to have that kind of like water cooler chat that, like you said, I was famous for that on campus. Talk to this person for five minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I made those 12 hour days fly by. I will say that. So I love that idea. And it sounds like you have a good, somewhat of a good workaround for connecting with your colleagues. So that's awesome. Yeah. It, you know, it, it works. It works. It's not, sometimes it's, sometimes I still wish there were other adults around that I would see more outside of my husband, but that's just not the, not the case right now. And you know, there are, it's gotta be technology for a little while and it's always great to connect with you and other friends that where that level of awkward and awkwardness and unfamiliarity is, is taken out. So 
but that's not work related. <laughs> um, so then, so we had one more. So actually, I like this question a lot. We asked our listeners what they would consider their greatest pedagogical success this past semester. And I think that's really important to focus on what went well and what you did well and what you accomplished. Because I think for all of you out there that are teaching in this difficult environment, I'm sure that you've given a lot of thought to the situation that your students are in, the, the situation that you, you yourselves find yourselves in, and how to make changes to teaching these classes. And I know that that's been a, a huge amount of work and I just think that it's important to give yourself a high five and identify some things that worked really, really well. So one of our listeners responded that she was able to create meaningful connections with students, even without ever meeting them in person. So she might have been a good person to talk to for the last, you know, to, to add to the conversation for the last five or 10 minutes. Maybe she had some other ideas about how to do that, but there weren't more specifics in her answer. And then another person, and this was somebody I think who works in the sciences, if I'm not mistaken, she said that she took out all of her exams out of her courses and that worked really, really well. And so I followed up with her because I was wondering how that works, because I always, first of all, I know that like as a student, I think I would have been very lost and mildly upset if somebody had taken tests and grades away from me, because that's such a way for me to like know that I'm doing well and assess my own learning and all those things. Um, which of course, you know, if 90% of the students do better without the exams, then, then that's a, you know, a much better approach. But so I asked her, I followed up with her, what, how did you, um, how did you do that? What did you, what did you change? How did you make sure that students assess their own progress? If at all, did you change the learning outcomes? And she wrote back and she said she revamped it all and the students are now compiling portfolios. And and I said, oh, I bet the students love that. And she said they did. So I like the way that she sort of completely rethought her pedagogy and how to think about how students can engage with the material that they're learning and reproduce it and maybe add to it. And I think a portfolio would look very different in a science class than it would in an English class. And you would still sort of grading essays, you would still sort of have to give feedback throughout the essays, so throughout the semester on the essays that they're writing. Um, and that made me think back a little bit to um, the English department while we were at Wayne was working on these assessment procedures where students were asked to assess themselves and their own progress. And they used the term metacognition, where the idea was for the students to look at the work that they had done and then identify themselves where they had made progress and what they had learned. And so I think, you know, if, if we're looking at these classes now, there's a huge potential there to really rethink how student learning happens and what how we can get students involved in taking responsibility for that learning, especially, you know, going back to the conversation that we had earlier about showing up for class and being there and turning their, your video on or not. Um, put them in charge of their learning and maybe a portfolio is a great way to do that. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Well, I'm in a special position because in my composition classes, we don't actually ever assign exams. But what I've been thinking for the last year or whatever it's been since March, has it? it's not even been a year yet, um, is that we can't really call those things exams anyway. Let's be honest. If, if a student is taking a, quote, examination online at home, unless there is some sort of spyware software that the university is required 
let's just call it a review. Okay. Because there is no guarantee <laughs> that they don't have yeah. a friend or a family member sitting there with the book, with the phone, it's a review. And I don't think we should call it anything else because to say that's quote unquote, an examination, the same way one would be given in a classroom, even if it was a computer exam where they fill it out online is not the same thing. Although I do know some universities have installed like little, they're like spyware. My, my son even has one for high school. It is a special program that monitors him and he absolutely hates it he's like oh 1984 Uh, but it's like a camera it's a it's it's connected to his um laptop camera and it watches him as he's taking the test interesting oh wow so I like that idea of the portfolio because that is asking them to reflect on what they've done what they've learned what they've mastered I always think those are even more meaningful to have a student be able now to show that they've mastered those terms those skills they can use it in a new and interesting way I think might be just as important as, you know, answering an ABCD multiple choice examination. So I think that's a really interesting technique. I'd be curious to hear what other folks in the STEM field have to say, because that use of the portfolio is something that has been pretty popular in our humanities and especially in the composition courses. But I really like that assignment because it's forcing the students to say. And when we were just talking about student evaluations off the show a little bit earlier, then they can kind of look back and reflect and say, wow, I really did master that, or I really did learn that, or I didn't master that concept. And maybe that's because maybe that's on me a little bit. Maybe I didn't try as much as I could have, you know? So I love those portfolio and reflective assignments that put the ball back in the student's court, so to speak. So that's a great answer. Yeah, I agree with that. And I love your spin of calling something a review rather than an exam. So I think language there is really important, right? If you give a student an exam, a review, or a portfolio, that's going to impact how they think about the assignment and what they, how they see the value of the assignment for them. And the, you know, not calling something an exam, I don't think that's just a workaround of, of taking the stress out. I think that's an adequate description of what it is that you're actually doing. And then that's going to impact the approach that you take. So I love that idea too. Um, finally, the last question that we asked people were, was, what are you most excited about and looking forward to this semester, this new semester? And one of the responses that we got, I thought was amazing. And the person said, not having to build my online courses from scratch this time, course copied to the rescue. Uh, that related to something I think that uh, you were talking about earlier. What, what's your thought on that? Oh, I love it. Now, off the record, unofficially, in Blackboard, you could do this whole course copy thing, too. And at my college, we ran into some problems with that because uh, some of our colleagues were being a bit sloppy with it. By that, I mean, you still have to change all the dates on the syllabus. You can't use 2015's dates on the 2016 (laughs) syllabi, guys. Uh, You can't say Happy Halloween and you're teaching the class in spring. But from my point of view, I found out how to do this on Canvas, and it's really easy. And the neat thing is you can decide what parts of the course you actually want to copy and import. So you don't have to copy the entire course. You can just say, well, I really like the discussion posts I used last year. I'm just going to copy all those. And then I can also copy all my supplemental files. And I agree with this person because I often teach the same classes again and again and again. I change things, I add things, I take away things, but it can be nice to like pull some of those key uh, moments out of the class. And especially for me, I'm teaching three versions of the same class. I have three different sections of the same thing. So rather than build it one, two, three, I built it once and then just copied it to the other two spots. And I was like, thank you to my chair who did that for me because now that makes it so much easier. So I love that. I think that's a really good one. 
I love the answer too. And I think for me, what spoke to me was a sort of metaphorical meaning of the way that we're moving forward. I think at this point, it's just so great to see we've done it all once and every day is no longer this like giant challenge of problem solving and figuring out this entirely new thing, right? We've done the pandemic for a while. We're getting better at it. We can go back and, and look at some of our successes and say, hey, I've mastered this for this long. Um, it might still continue to be strange and weird and hard, but we have so much to look back at and fall back on and tell ourselves, like, I've done this so many times already, I can do this one more time. And so that's what I really loved about the the course copy. It was just sort of like this general, like broader way to think about how this semester is different from the last one and the, and the one before that. I like that interpretation. So it sounds like a lot of this has res- resonated with you and you can make the connections to your work and your life. As we move close to the end of the hour, I wanted to check in with you if you are reading anything new this week or if the start of school and all that has prevented you from picking up any new books this week. I have been reading a little bit and it kind of relates, although I wish I had had this book a lot sooner. And I don't know, I keep mentioning these like almost self-help like guidebooks and maybe that's a little strange that I've been enjoying those but this one is called Extraordinary Parenting the Essential Guide to Parenting and Educating at Home Uh, the author is Alois Rickman and she's also on Instagram uh, very active on Instagram and this is a book about I mean I think the title says it all but she's a home educator and this book sort of combines um, positive discipline peaceful parenting Montessori uh philosophy and just sort of a really um, gracious approach to the challenging challenging situation that we find ourselves in. And she actually, I don't know how they did this in terms of timeline, but she wrote this during the pandemic, like during the quarantine, when people were already quarantined, she felt that there was a need for the book and she wrote it. And so um, I wish that I had had this book in May. There's a lot of good stuff about, Again, how to keep your cool with your kids, which seems to be a recurring theme for me. And that, but then also, um, the second chapter that I just read that I really enjoyed was about establishing a rhythm in your home, and that's been something that I have sort of worked at repeatedly and changed over the last nine months. And I feel like it relates to today's episode a little bit in terms of like organization and how to get organized, because part of what I started out with was this like really strict schedule and routine that I was trying to have for my kids and then the way that she talked about sort of just having a general flow to your day um, was really helpful and now like I said now that my kids are back in school it's a little bit less relevant but I'm still really enjoying just sort of this this approach to parenting that's very gentle and kind and just supportive while also um, identifying some things that that as readers we might still wish to improve on in our lives and and giving some ideas for how to do that. So that's a light read that I've basically I've been reading that while nursing. So just, you know, five to ten, two to five pages at a time, I guess I should say. Um, and very, very easy read, but enjoyable. How about you? Have you been reading anything? 
I started a new novel called The Night Watchman by Louise Erdrich. She's actually one of my favorite authors. She is frequently writing about the Native American community, and she's just a wonderful storyteller. It is a lengthy, large book. Um, it's one of those books, though, where I just picked it up and I read like 100 pages in a night because I have that luxury now. Um, so it's I will add a little bit more to that conversation as I go on. But if you have not ever read the work of Louise Erdrich, I just recommend her to everyone. I just... There's something about her use of place and language and visuals and sensory details that I just find so engaging. She's an awesome storyteller. So I will share more next week as we round out the hour. I loved your use of the Instagram poll for content for this episode. So if we're going to be adding more polls and posts and takeaways, where can our listeners find us on Instagram, Judith? Yes, I did appreciate that too. It was fun to hear from everybody. You can find us on Instagram at PhD and Parenting. Um, and you can also, um, if you're sharing something, if you tag us, we'll see it. We'll throw it up in our stories. There are some great ways to engage on that platform. And if you would just like to send us a little bit of a longer email or give us some other feedback, the email address is PhD and Parenting Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, my little plug for leaving a review or a rating and sharing episodes with your friends, uh, whatever you can do to spread the word is greatly appreciated. So thank you again this week as every week for tuning in. And we look forward to coming back with a new episode to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a great week. And until next time, thank you so much for joining us.